action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your favorite semi-monthly movie positive, pop culture, cross-section, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're recovering everything from uh, deep dive historical stuff, contemporary cinema, although there's not very much of that right now, and everything in between. I'm your host, Oscar Dahl, coming to you from the surprisingly serene and beautiful Seattle, Washington. And I'm joined uh, over Zoom from Los Angeles, California, my podcasting partner for near a decade, over a decade, Matt Knudsen. Yeah, I'm just sitting here trying my hardest to uh, believe in a world outside my own mind, that my actions have meaning, that when my eyes are closed, that the world is still out there. It's apropos, though, that there's a world outside my own mind, because this is the first time that we've done this over Zoom. So it's going to be interesting to actually look you in the eyes for this conversation. Yeah, it's, it's a little weird, but it's but it's also slightly comforting. And this has been kind of my life for the last couple of months. Like, I really have shifted everything onto Zoom. I mean, I'm I'm doing Zoom screenings with friends at least a couple times a week, which has been really great and something I, I look forward to all week long. And it didn't take very long for it to kind of become second nature and for it to mm-hmm. become comfortable. It's become just very normalized now. For, I guess. for the non-podcasters, they've they've had to get used to their own voice, unlike us who've who've heard it forever and understand what we sound like. But getting used to sure. seeing your own face on screen that took a little time. Did you did you have an insane burst of Zoom calls at the beginning and then it waned a little bit and then picked back up because that's been my experience. I'd love to say that I've been having a bunch of professional Zoom calls, you know, script meetings and stuff, but unfortunately I'm uh, I'm furloughed at the yeah. moment. None of my calls are business related, <laughs> unfortunately. They're all they're all watching Annie Hall on a Sunday night with a friend. But no, they, they've been pretty consistent and I've got my different tiers, you know, like I've got my Saturday night movie party with some college friends and I, I've got the uh, every other Saturday morning Zoom call with some um, family members and, and then there's other ones scattered throughout the week. But I don't see any reason why this shouldn't become the norm for us from now on. Zoom automatically records all this so that we have backup audio yeah. of, of our conversation. Plus, it's recording video. I'm not necessarily sure we would want to release that in any sort of capacity, but it's nice to know we have well, the option to know, do it. I, I might move in a couple months, and if I if I get myself a little home office, then yeah, maybe maybe we do try to get those YouTube bucks. What do you think it would cost us to get Christopher Nolan to record an introduction <laughs> to our oeuvre series and, and how, how he's been a WLM listener since I'm the very beginning? I'm trying to think beginning. of anyone in a Christopher Nolan movie who might be on cameo. Usually the classy people, the people who have a little pride uh, and don't need the cash aren't on cameo. It's not like everyone's available. You know, like I doubt Ken Watanabe is on cameo. With all due respect to Ken Watanabe and his and his melodious voice, he does have a little bit of a reputation for um, having such a thick accent that he can oftentimes, his dialogue is oftentimes a little impenetrable for some people. He might not necessarily be the best option for recording an outgoing <laughs> voicemail yeah. message. Carrie 
Dan Moss might be on there. I, I think that's someone sure. that could potentially be on Cameo. It's sort of that caliber. She'd probably be around $75 a Cameo, something like that. Once they set a price you and you send in a message that's like appropriate or whatever, they will, oh. they kind of have to do it. You're like signing a contract. For what's supposed to be an evergreen episode, I feel like we're really putting our stake in the ground at a certain <laughs> time and place. But that's fine. <laughs> this particular oeuvre is not going to be as evergreen as others because this one was supposed to be leading up to something very present tense. And we are still 100% on yeah. the bubble. They bu- they bumped Tenet from the 17th back to the 31st. I mean, I wake up every single morning sort of half expecting it to have been bumped back to Christmas yeah. or even to 2021. Things can change at a moment's notice. And if they never open movie theaters again, Christopher Nolan might be forced to start doing cameo. You know, like he may, he may just have to pivot into that if, if he can't get a movie theater to open to play his goddamn 11th film. I think that's a topic for a different podcast. And we've discussed the death, potential death of theaters many, many times here. And I don't want to talk about that right now because it's too sad. But this is Oeuvre, Christopher Nolan, part two. And in the spirit of Christopher Nolan, we're, we're moving back in time, right? Let's call it part three, just because we'll include my um, intro, you know, my solo pod as part one. So, but yes, this is, this is our second installment where we're actually exploring some of his films directly. We got our Dark Knight movies out of the way. Now we're jumping back to the very beginning and we're going to cover following Memento, Insomnia, and then we're going to jump over Batman Begins and yep. hit the prestige. I always had the title for this episode just kind of slugged in as confidence and misdirection. By the end of this conversation, let me know if I can come up with anything better or more appropriate. But to me, this one was always going to be about grifters, the misdirection used by con men and then by extension magicians, mm-hmm. uh, of course, in the in the prestige. This series, or this episode rather, also begins with what I sort of like to consider his Daylight Noir trilogy. I mean, his first three films are 100% neo-noir exercises, yeah. right? They are genre, genre exercises. By the time Insomnia comes along, I think a lot of us felt the same way. Like, oh, this is the noir guy. Like, this is our new noir guy, and this is going to be his lane. He gets Batman, and he becomes something else completely. But for a while there, it's like, wow, this guy is really interested in noir, and he wants to sort of experiment with the genre, and he's clearly very interested in pretty morally bankrupt characters, I'd say, right? Like, you look at these three, at these four films, the protagonists of these films are bad guys, you know? We're talking about murderers and and liars and thieves and uh, obsessive prestidigitators. And then as he gets a little older and he starts dealing with Batman and then starts sort of crafting characters that I think reflect him directly a little more, Cobb and in Inception or Cooper and in Interstellar. I think he starts to soften a little bit and he starts to become more interested in characters who are a little more humane and a little more reflective of, of him and his interests. And I think that also directly speaks to the fact that he was becoming a father at that point, right? Like he kind of, as he becomes a father, he kind of pivots out of a lot of these just bad dudes. Yeah. And starts getting into characters who are a little more sympathetic. Not no less complex in my estimation, but certainly a little more humane. Yeah, perhaps. we'll get there. He it is very possible that he lost uh, all of the misanthropy that he had coming into the business. We have a lot of unreliable narrators. We have a lot of protagonists that tend to lie to themselves and lie to all the yes. people around them. He's very concerned with sense of self. Who am I? Uh, what is my meaning? What am I supposed to do in this world? A sense of uh, of weird antagonistic duty. That all said, it's not like these four films are outliers if you take his whole filmography as a whole, right? Like you still see 
his obsession with time deconstructing the sort of linear shape of most films, right? Like he he's only concerned about uh, making movies in a interesting sort of iconoclastic way. These are genre exercises, sure, but he's never going to do it in a straightforward manner. Certainly not. I mean, right out of the gates, he's already screwing around with narrative. He's already challenging audiences. He's already expecting a certain level of sophistication and Mm -hmm. engagement from the audience. I mean, if you look at the structure of following, it's practically impenetrable on first viewing. I mean, it's it's pretty esoteric, I, I feel. I mean, Obviously, I had already seen Memento. You know, I'd already seen a handful of his films before I I got around to following many years ago. So I was already somewhat conditioned, somewhat coached up. Yeah. But imagine being at a film festival in 1998 or 1999 and being like, wow, this this movie's really kind of bold and confident in how weird it is. It's pretty unprecedented and it's pretty impressive that people were willing to engage with him on that level so early on. Before we get fully into uh, following his, his feature debut which was done on zero budget is only 70 minutes long was shot only on saturdays over the course of many months because everyone who's in the movie had nine to fives we we just give a little background on how nolan got to following i mean he has the same kind of background as a lot as a lot of successful filmmakers have you know he's got the whole borrowed his dad's eight millimeter camera when he was 10 years old was making little stop motion videos with his gi joes already knew he wanted to be a filmmaker from a very early age but decided not to go to film school he decided to go uh and study english at ucl university college london goes and studies english there but he also gets involved with the ucl film society which is where he gets access to some equipment and he and his then girlfriend emma thomas also start like a screening series there they're basically kind of like building out ucl film society to become a little more structured than it was before he got there he was the president of the ucl film society for the whole time he was he was in college in at university <laughs> father is a british ad executive mother is an american flight attendant so he's splitting a lot of his time between chicago and London. And he's he's getting shuffled back and forth a lot, settles in London in his teens, goes to UCL, which is obviously in London, starts making films, meets Emma Thomas, uh, meets this guy Jeremy Theobald, who he casts in a lot of his early short films. The, the first three of record are Tarantella, Larceny, and Doodlebug. I haven't been able to find Tarantella and Larceny anywhere. Uh, Doodlebug you can find on YouTube and it's also on the Criterion channel because it was a supplemental bonus item for the Criterion release of Following, which is interestingly Nolan's only film in the Criterion <laughs> collection. It feels like a real hipster move on the yeah. Criterion collection to be like, Inception, Dark Knight, sure, but we're going to go with Following. We're going <laughs> to stick with Following. First three shorts, black and white, obviously very, very low budget. Doodlebug becomes a little bit of a sensation. It's pretty silly, but it has a lot of personality to it, and it's got a real vibe, you know, it's got a real tone. And it stars uh, Jeremy Theobald, who goes on to become the protagonist of following so on the strength of doodlebug and you know he's starting to kind of like build a little bit of a reputation at ucl and his you know he's starting to kind of put together bigger more ambitious projects he and his girlfriend emma thomas start developing a feature in the mid 90s and on nolan's wikipedia page it's described as an arty student angst film called larry mahoney 
but the film was scrapped and never released. He pivots to this following thing, which was a direct reaction on his part to having his apartment burgled in the mid-90s. The experience of having somebody invade his space like that inspires him to start writing following, and he basically re reverse engineers this project knowing the budget and the resource restrictions he's yeah. gonna be working with. So at the time he's making, you know, he's like doing industrial videos, he's, he's working as a freelance editor, he's a projectionist, like he basically has a bunch of little odd jobs and stuff. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, he has a nine to five coming out of UCL along with all of his collaborators. So like you said, they start putting together short ends of super 16 millimeter film and just going out there and shooting at their parents' friends' apartments <laughs> around London for I think almost a year that it took them to put this all together. This is barely a feature. It's 69 minutes long. Apparently was $6,000 all in and went on to a worldwide box office gross of 250 grand. Not too shabby. Famously doesn't get into Sundance and so he does slam dance instead and it ends up winning some awards there plays at festivals all over the world and then has a very small theatrical run it, it comes out and actually screens in a few theaters in the uk november 5th 1999 so we didn't talk about this last year during our 99 series but even though imdb considers this a 98 movie because when it began its festival run it actually premiered in theaters in 99 okay. so i think it's significant that this is a film that falls into that 1999 cohort because the turn of the century 99 2000 2001 is when we see this really interesting pivot towards these kind of mind game or thought experiment films, yeah. right? You know, your mementos, your source codes, eventually your inceptions and, you know, stuff of that nature. You know, you could maybe even throw Sixth Sense in with something like that. The Game. You know, the, the Game, sure, that's a 98 movie, right? The kinds of films that basically require you to get up after the movie's done, go outside to the lobby, buy a ticket, and go right back in and watch it again. Like movies that fundamentally require a second viewing. I don't know if Nolan was conscious about that, but you look at his filmography and even even the Batman films, maybe to a, uh, the Dark Knight films to a lesser extent, they really, really, really require that, that at least a second viewing, if not multiple viewings. It's interesting because I, I don't know if you've read any interviews with him or it, it's been explained, but I wonder how much the, the no budget part of it sort of led him to do these interesting narrative things, at least on following, right? Because this story as told, and I think this is a kind of a through line for a lot of Nolan's early films, it just simply wouldn't be as interesting if it was told straight ahead, right? If this was done linearly, same with Memento, it wouldn't be as interesting a movie. Absolutely. And so I wonder if he just got a taste for it on following through budgetary restrictions, like, okay, how can I make this budget work for me as best as it can? I just wonder where he got this obsession with the structure of film and if it in part had to do with the constraints he had with following. It's kind of a chicken or the egg situation. Yeah, yeah. He's deeply, deeply committed to subjectivity. And he's always about trying to put you in the head of these characters, right? And he's, he's always attempting to create a structure that best emulates the mental state of the characters he's, he's focusing on, sure. at least at least in these early movies, you know, this and Memento being the most explicit example of that. But when you hear him talk about these movies, he'll write the story out chronologically or linearly, and then he'll go back and restructure it so that it reflects the narrative structure that he's looking to do. There's tons of YouTube clips you can see of him basically drawing diagrams out to explain why the structure of Memento works the way it does. And he's very mathematical, you know, like he, yeah, he was yeah. an English major, but you can tell that the way his brain works is very mathematically and graphically and almost architectural. Yeah, it's very architectural. I mean, obviously, Inception is all about that. So but yeah, all the MC Escher stuff, you can really tell that's that's how his brain works, is that he looks at this like a scaffolding 
happening, and he's interested in like rearranging the pieces. Well, it, it's not only for plot. I mean, it's for character too, like you mentioned, right? Like that's the important part. Is you know these four movies have a lot of uh, a lot of heel turns, if you will, right? Like we get into the minds of these people and we believe in their righteousness, and then he pulls the rug out from under us, right? Sure. What was good is actually bad, and the reason is this character lied to himself, or his motivations weren't exactly what they seem to be at the beginning. You mentioned the confidence coming in with following, and that really is the most striking thing to me about this movie is is the balls on this guy to tell this kind of story, edited this kind of way, with such a sort of ambiguous moral center to it. It is almost more complex and confusing than Memento when you really sit back and think about it. Okay. Just in terms of trying to understand it upon first viewing and trying to put the pieces together. There's less hand-holding, I think. Like, Memento is very structured. Following feels a little more elliptical I could yes. feel it does it, it's not trying as hard like Memento really wants to teach you how to watch it like it spends the first hour teaching you how to comprehend it and then it pays off and, and no, one, no one's doing this trick all the time. He loves, I mean, he's always being accused of like his first acts being very dense with lots and lots of exposition. Inception might be the ultimate example of that. He does that so that he can eventually pay it off like a slot machine later. Once he gets you invested, once he teaches you how to read his movies, then we can just rock and roll. Upon second viewing, once you sort of have the, the key code, right? Like you really, it's kind of easy to understand what's going on. This movie's more like, a, I don't know, a primer or something because figuring out the chronology of it is very difficult. That's a great comp. I also have this movie sharing a lot of DNA with Clerks, weirdly, with Pi. Sure. It's very, yeah, yeah, very Pi. Um, Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, which I just rewatched recently, which is Damien Chazelle's first film. These are all black and white movies, of course. And then I also see a lot of Bound in this movie, the Wachowskis, <laughs> the Wachowskis yeah, yeah. Um, debut feature. I mean, the, the, there's also a lot of the, the early 90s, like, you know, I don't know, the pulp fictionization of movies where you have playing with time and time periods and chronology and multiple storylines. You have, you have Tarantino, you have Soderbergh. You have all these guys showing that it's it's possible and it's popular. I think it definitely would be naive to give Nolan too much credit. I mean, it's not like he invented this. He's just one of those guys who really found a way to kind of weaponize it. And oh, yeah. uh, and I think around this time, going into the 21st century, it just started to become normalized. And I think we were becoming more sophisticated. You know, is it because of the influence of video games? You know, is it because of the, the influence of serialized television? I, who knows? I think there's different ways to explore it. But I really feel like right around the turn of the century, is when you start seeing a lot of this stuff, especially in the science fiction realm, of course. Oh, yeah. You see a lot of these filmmakers really leaning into the storytelling mechanics and, and Nolan almost fetishizes it. I mean, you look at how much he clearly is invested and fascinated by narrative structure. And it's like, oh, he's activated by this. It excites him way more than character development does. A lot of people have criticized him about that. Oh, yeah. And that might be fair. I, you know, I've watched this movie like three times over the last month because it's so short. I just watched it once all the way through because I hadn't seen it in years. And then I watched it again with Nolan's commentary on the Criterion channel. And then I watched it a third time because they they do the linear cut. So they, he, oh, okay. he recut it so you can watch it linear. And just like you said, it doesn't work nearly as well, dramatically. Like yeah. There's a lot of intentionality to the way he's, he's structuring this. And to just watch it all the way through linearly, even though it's obviously easier to follow, the revelations don't land as effectively. Yeah. I think there's three timelines 
that we're following here, right? Sure. It's not like Memento where we're going back and forth. We're, we're Everybody's moving forward. We're looking at three different parts of the story, and we're jumping back and forth between them, but they're all moving forward. Nothing's ever moving backwards. Memento is, I mean, not to jump there, but like Memento is very meticulously, like it's got a very hard set of rules, and it's very easy to follow once you see the diagram. You shared a couple diagrams with me yeah. going two ways, and they meet in the middle. Yep. This movie and even Prestige, I haven't really broken it down, but they there are multiple sort of... That movie kind of just jumps all over the place, I guess. Uh, we'll get there, but that movie is unbelievably ambitious. Like, I've probably seen yeah. that movie 10 times, and even, like, every time I watch it, I'm always like, oh, yeah, geez, this movie just, like, right out of the <laughs> gates is just asking a lot of you. Yeah. Even though I know exactly where it's going and, and how it's going to get there and what what it, you know, what's involved, I'm still always like, okay, wait a second. All right, wait, we're in, we're in Colorado. Oh, wait, okay, no, now we're back in London. No, okay, now he's in jail. Like, it, you really, his movies require you to lean in, and he, he expects that of the audience. And I think we reap the benefits if we're willing to go there with him. There's a sector of the viewing public who just finds it to be too cute or too involved or too impressed yeah. with itself. Sure. And I think Inception might be the one that really kind of divides us. You know, like that movie loses just <laughs> yeah. a lot of people because of that movie's personality. But we'll get there. So I think he establishes a lot of really interesting things here in following. He's obviously very committed to these alienated lone wolf kind of characters, right? Mm -hmm. Pardon the term, we're following this guy who is following strangers and uh, trying to collect information, trying to find inspiration for his novel. He has all these rules that he sets out for himself, and once he violates those rules, once he starts getting too close to the people he's following is when things start to unravel for him. And we have this morally ambiguous... I guess you would call him the antagonist, but he's also kind of following his own path. And I think there's <laughs> yes. one reading of the film that says he's actually the main character or he's actually the protagonist. He certainly thinks of himself as the good guy. And his name is Cobb, which is, of course, the name of the character that DiCaprio plays in Inception. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life, making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. You take it away, you show them what they had. I mean, I think by the end of it, my thought was, well, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's just, it's two protagonists and it's almost prestige in that way. So yeah, so he's, he's obviously playing with this nonlinear stuff with no audience hand-holding. He expects you to follow him. Um, he's establishing a strategy of using one camera. Now, that's obviously <laughs> a pragmatic decision because they only had access to one camera and this movie was made for $6,000. But it's significant because as his movies get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, he and his eventual collaborator, Wally Pfister, and then Hoyt Van Hoytema later, they don't do second unit. They'll use multiple cameras if they're shooting a, a truck flipping over or something, but they don't do splinter units, which means that Nolan and his DP are always on set for every single shot, supervising and looking at everything, and as opposed to sending off a whole second unit crew to go and collect helicopter shots of Iceland or yeah. something. Like, Nolan is in the helicopter with Wally Pfister flying over Alaska. Christopher Nolan loves aircraft. <laughs> he does. We, we established uh, on the last episode that he loves vehicles. You know, a lot of this stuff is very noir-centric, and a lot of these are just sort of noir tropes. But there's, there's you know, a lot of urban alienation in this movie. You know, we talked during The Dark Knight episode about how obsessed he is with cities and with the personality the souls of cities and this is clearly him at a point in his life where he's like making a film that's kind of reflecting how alienated he feels in a crowd he's living in a very dense part of london and he's so he's surrounded by people all the time and yet he's feeling very very lonely and very isolated and very alienated from the world around him which is kind of what sort of defines this 
the main character, who we never really we never really find out what his name is, right? Like he refers to himself as Bill, but you get the impression that that he's lying about that. In the credits, he's just referred to as the young man. No, I mean the the sort of anonymity that this guy feels is interesting. You know, you mentioned that he's he's breaking and he's following people and like going to their homes and checking out their shit as inspiration for his theoretical novel or try to get inspiration. But I mean, that's never really banged over your head. And by the end of it, I at least I was questioning that motivation. Is that just an excuse to do what he wanted to do, which is be a creep, right? Finding ways to procrastinate by doing something that looks on the surface as productive. <laughs> You know, like, sure, sure. Uh, boy, I don't have any inspiration. I'm not disciplined enough to sit down and start writing my novel. So I'm just going to walk around and follow people. He's a very lost guy, of course. Like, this is one of Nolan's most kind of sad and lost and sort of pathetic protagonists. It does have a, a little bit of that. We're definitely watching a student film kind of situation you know yeah. he he transcends those sort of like aesthetic considerations because there is clearly so, something so interesting and intellectual going on beneath the surface and by nature of being a part of the criterion channel he, he, he achieves something kind of special i don't know if this is necessarily like a recommendable movie i mean it really feels like only for nolan completists well i mean i was gonna ask you like what what, what do you think you would take away from this movie if you didn't know it was christopher nolan right like w- w- would you think this is just kind of a kind of a trifle kind of a weird experience experimental short film or do you think you'd have similar reactions yeah just in a vacuum just like going yeah. being at slam dance in 1998 and just knowing nothing about this and knowing nothing about this guy and just sitting down i think i would be impressed when i found out that it was his debut feature it's just it's like just it's barely a movie you know like it's very yeah. and you know it's tight it's sharp for sure but it really feels like a, a young filmmaker kind of going you know just trying to find his voice or whatever i'm not crazy about the ending either the, the, it's a little the, perfunctory. Is this the first time you'd seen it? First time I'd seen okay, it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I enjoyed it. Like I said, it's it's tight. It's it's not it's not like a hard watch. More than interesting enough. But you know the, the criticisms of character development and sort of linear linear plot stuff I think are valid. You know the star of this movie is the sort is the structure is the architecture of it, which you could say about a few of his movies. And it's got a texture to it. I mean, he obviously chose black and white for um, economic reasons, mm-hmm. but it's it's also right for the material. Material, you know, like it makes a lot of sense. He he wanted to do it because it was going to be cheaper and also because it was going to be easier to light. You know, like it yeah. was going to respond better to all the sort of like the natural light sources he was going to need to use because they obviously didn't have access to a bunch of lighting equipment. But it, it feels right. It's got a wonderful kind of grimy. There's a lot of grain, you know, in the 60 millimeter film. It just it just has a nice texture to it is the word I keep coming back to. And significantly operated the camera himself. And uh, sometimes it's it's fun to watch his commentary on the Criterion channel because he's not what I would call an egotistical filmmaker when you see him interviewed or you listen to his commentaries but there are a few times when he's like oh i was i was pretty proud of that shot i was walking backwards down uh, down a flight (laughs) of stairs and i was amazed i didn't fall you know i didn't fall over myself i'm I'm pretty proud of that shot also significantly uh, produced by his then girlfriend now wife emma thomas she has produced all of his films scored by david julian who does the scores for everything up through well he does he does the prestige but he doesn't do batman begins famously batman begins is where he starts his um collaboration with Hans, with Hans, yeah. Hans Zimmer. Jonathan Nolan, who's Chris's little brother, who uh, goes by Jonah. Whenever you see him in interviews, he always refers to himself as Jonah Nolan. Right. He was helping out. I presume he was probably also going on lunch runs and stuff as well. <laughs> Jonah Nolan is uh, six years younger than Chris. They have an older brother 
Matthew Nolan, who is a convicted criminal currently serving time for murder. And he is a con artist and a grifter and a bad dude, scammed a lot of people out of a lot of money in Chicago and was recently extradited to Costa Rica. I don't know if they were close. He's only two years older than Chris. I don't know how close they were. It's, it's hard to find too much information about him. But you can obviously see seeds of influence, like the kinds of criminals, the kinds of characters he's exploring in these first few films. It, I mean, it couldn't just be coincidence. No, and he, he's definitely trying to humanize these con men and Absolutely. too. Right? Trying to, tr trying to understand their motivations. Trying to 100%. And then, you, you know, you get to Inception, and that movie is about a thief. But it, that movie is um, enamored with the thief, right? Like, that movie's in love with... Yeah. Yeah. DiCaprio's thief, but he is he's a criminal. He's a thief. He's stealing things from people's minds. All right, so Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan are hanging out in Chicago circa 1999-ish. Following has already had its festival run. Nolan decides he's going to move to Los Angeles, and his little brother is going to drive with them from Chicago to Los Angeles. Pretty healthy road trip. So the Nolan boys, you know, they, they load up in the, the General Lee or whatever, and uh, they, they make their little cross-country trip. And along the way, they start discussing what ends up becoming Memento Mori, which is a short story Jonah Nolan wrote, pitching this idea to his older brother, Chris, and Chris becomes fascinated by it. And it's all about the idea of enterograde amnesia. They hash it all out. They talk about it. They, be, they both become inspired by it. Chris goes off and writes a script Jonah goes off and writes a short story, which would eventually show up Esquire magazine in March of 2001. Short story is called Memento Mori, which is um, Latin for remember that you will die. Nolan's script is, of course, called Memento. When that film gets Oscar nominated, it is nominated for original screenplay, not adapted screenplay, because the film came out before the short story was published. And actually, I've never read the short story, but when you read about it, they, they actually have very little in common structurally. You know, they're both about the same kind of protagonist with the same issue, but that's about yeah. where it ends. So when that movie gets nominated, it's it gets nominated for original screenplay by Christopher Nolan, story by Jonathan Nolan. Emma Thomas slips the script from Memento to a couple of guys from a, a company called New Market Films, and uh, they decide to put $4.5 million into it, and he's off to the races with his second feature. The trajectory for Memento's releases is quite interesting. Um, it was shot over 25 days in September and October of 1999, mostly in northeast, in the northeast San Fernando Valley, Burbank, Tahunga, Silmar, ugly part of the San Fernando Valley, like just the, yeah. uh, as my father is uh, often fond of saying, not, not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. Anyway, they shoot this movie, they finish at 99, and then it starts a festival run in 2000. It hits the Venice Film Festival in September of 2000, just about a year later but does not make it to Sundance until January of 2001. So, but that's pretty crazy to consider, you know, his sophomore feature premiering at a high profile festival like Venice. Pretty, pretty impressive and, and, yeah. and a very telling about how this movie just immediately struck a chord with people. It becomes kind of a sensation at Sundance and it gets the attention of Steven Soderbergh, which we can get to when we talk about Insomnia. Memento, this was an incredibly, incredibly formative movie for me. Whatever I was, 17-year-old okay. Matt Knutson seeing it at the uh, at the Meridian 16 downtown, knowing nothing about this Nolan guy, just having heard that it was a big Sundance sensation, and let's just say mind blown. Never seen anything like it. I did not know anything about Christopher Nolan. What I did know was this was, if I remember correctly, this was one of those ain't it cool news movies that was hyped up on the early internet. Okay. 
and got a lot of love on the internet and it's one of those movies that you try not to spoil yourself on and I, I luckily did not. I do remember I saw it in the theater. I was kind of just brain broken because I was still young and stupid <laughs> and then had to go see it again and then I understood it and I don't think I've watched it since then. I don't think I've watched it since 2001. Wow. Maybe I watched it in college with you. It, it's been a while and while I really, really enjoy this movie, for me it's not like the most rewatchable movie. Okay. Just because once you once you know what's happening, uh, once you understand the structure, this is pretty straightforward. This is one that, another movie where if you watch it linearly, which I haven't, I know that's an option. It is on like the DVD, right? Yep. I I would imagine it's it's not not all that interesting. Certainly less interesting. And yeah, when you really break it down like that, like I I sent you a couple of spreadsheets that I built a yeah. couple years ago when I was writing about this movie. Forty five scenes in this movie, and when I say scenes, I mean the contained windows of time before jumping between each between the yeah. temporalities right because you got one moving yeah. forward and you got one moving backward so if you really break it down like that you got basically 44 transitions between these two timelines and then if you reorder them chronologically it is an unbelievably simple narrative trajectory right yes. but i think that's by design you know I, I, it needs yeah. to be simple enough that you can still follow it backwards, right? Because if, it, if it's too complex and if it's too convoluted, he, I think he's going to lose you. And he's already going to lose a lot of people just by nature of how esoteric his storytelling style here is. It's it's a stroke of genius that he has here to do the backwards structure. I completely understand why this was such a phenomenon and why this really got people's attention because it was kind of an unprecedented storytelling device. I mean, I, I was thinking watching it again that like if you're an audience member and you don't know anything about this movie and you see it for the first time and it doesn't click in that like, the bullet coming back into the into the gun means you're going backwards from there on out. You're just going to be totally fucking baffled the entire time, really. It's significant that the bullet going backwards into a gun and then a gun hopping up off the ground into a character's hand is such a instantly iconic image in the trailers for Tenet. I couldn't yeah. help but think about that when I was rewatching Memento this week. Like, hmm, interesting. Wow, he was already fascinated by the idea of a gun hopping up off the ground into his protagonist's hand. Or he likes to reference his own stuff. Sure, fair enough. <laughs> it's all part of the Nolan verse, right? I think something that's very, very important for him, as I referenced earlier, is just teaching the audience how he expects you to read the film because you're going to need to read it. You're going to need to get involved and you're going to need to uncoat it. And he is laying breadcrumbs the entire way he's not going to hold your hand but he's certainly yeah. he, he's he's a, a genius at coming up with great devices to use to lead you into his world and you're exactly right just the fact that the first shot plays out literally plays out backwards because he flaps the polaroid out of existence right like it starts mm -hmm. out, you can see it, then he starts flapping and flapping and it eventually fades and fades and fades. And yeah. And then that also sets you up for the beautiful handshake that occurs when the two timelines fi finally collide. Like this is a big thing for Nolan is what I've what I've written about and, and referred to as like the confluence zone where his timelines converge. It's very effective here. It's very effective in Inception. It's really effective and moving in uh, Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is, this is an important thing to him. I think the best compliment you can give this movie is that it's really disciplined and it really commits to the bit, right? Yeah. Like he has a structure here and he's going to commit to it. Not everybody's going to be willing or able to follow him along for the ride, but he's not going to lose confidence in his own bit. He's going to keep no. this structure all the way to the end and, and it will eventually pay off, but you're going to need to be patient and you're going to need to stick with him. No, that, it's the only way a movie like this is going to work is to have the, the discipline to see it all the way through despite any confusion you might be hoisting, hoisting upon the audience. What I said earlier where it's like this movie's not as interesting if you just watch it linearly, that's not 
not it's not really a criticism like for nolan especially in these early movies the structure is the content right like that is what you're paying to see is 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 the architecture of this movie and that's more than good enough i am fascinated by this narrative concept of the fabula versus the sujet i'm not sure if you had a chance to listen to my my solo pod yet in case you didn't, or in case anybody who's listening to this didn't, I'll just briefly define them. So there's these Russian formalists, like the early part of the 20th century, who were devising a way to uh, differentiate between the chronological events of a story and the manner in which the storyteller organizes those events, right? So you got these two yeah. terms, fabula, sujet, Russian formalist. Fabula would be the story, and sujet would be the plot. Mm-hmm. So if fabula is the what, then the sujet is the how. Those um, spreadsheets that I sent you, I have one of them is Nolan's sujet, and then one of them is the actual chronological fabula. It's interesting to be able to compare them like that. Nolan is a, what I would call a sujetic fetishist. You know, like he is (laughs) interested in the building blocks and he wants to be able to reorganize them for optimal dramatic payoff. Dunkirk might be the ultimate example of that because I also actually put Dunkirk into Adobe Premiere and I just recut the whole thing to be chronological. And no, it's not nearly as effective. It's I mean, it works fine. Like it's it's followable, but it's not nearly yeah. as powerful as Nolan's sujet is because in his version, you you know, you get the emotional payoff of watching like the Spitfire plane sure. burning up in the penultimate shot of the movie. Instead, you know, you don't get payoff like that if you just look at the thing chronologically. And he understands that implicitly. And that's what he's interested in playing with. Memento is just a really clean explication of that approach uh, right off of Wikipedia. Memento was screened for various studio heads, including Harvey Weinstein in March of 2000. Although most of the executives loved the film and praised Nolan's talent, all passed on distributing the picture, believing it was too confusing. After famed independent film director Steven Soderbergh saw the film and learned it was not being distributed, he championed the film in interviews and public events, giving it more publicity, although Nolan still did not secure a distributor. New Market, who had financed the film, in a financially risky move, decided to distribute the film themselves. After the first few weeks of distribution, Memento had reached more than 500 theaters and earned a domestic total of $25 million in its box office run. The film's success was surprising to those who passed on the film, so much so that Harvey Weinstein realized his mistake and tried to buy the film from New Market. But, they, <laughs> but by that point, they weren't selling. Goes on to do uh, about $40 million worldwide. Hardly a blockbuster, but a pretty decent return and just kind of became a cultural phenomenon. Yeah. It was a big deal. It was a big talking point in 2001. Yeah, it was a big deal. And I remember a lot of people being sort of off-put by it and a lot of people loving it obsessively and that's uh, somewhat predictable given what the movie is certainly even then though even after this movie was a thing I don't know I mean like how quickly did you glom on to the idea of Christopher Nolan as some sort of up and coming auteur because I don't remember responding that way I'm wondering if it's because this movie if you sort of look at it's like oh that's a sort of cute gimmick of a movie they found a good gimmick and they executed it, it doesn't really inspire you to think that this guy is the next big name. It's a, it's a good question. I think I might sort of wait until our next episode to answer it completely because I need I need Inception to be part of the conversation to really describe <laughs> like when, when Nolan clicked for me. Um, yeah. This was an important movie 
to me in high school, and I definitely got my mind blown by it. And I watched it a lot in college. And I had I owned the crazy special edition DVD that you have to base. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but you have to play with the menu. Like it's basically set up like a psychological uh, evaluation <laughs> test. And there's no you have to like click on different pictures and different words, and you get like flashcards. And it's completely obnoxious. I'm sure to anybody who just <laughs> wants to watch the movie, um, but I'm sure Nolan uh, finds that very entertaining. That that he probably is annoying people. I mean, in, unless you're already a big fan of the movie, you wouldn't have bought that special edition DVD. <laughs> My point is that I was I was way into it and then Insomnia and Batman Begins and The Prestige come along and while I respected all three of those movies all of which I saw in college or shortly after college I was never passionate about those movies the way that I was about Memento okay. so I was like when Memento comes like this is the guy can't wait to see what he does next and then he does Insomnia which I respected but I wasn't blown away by and then he does Batman Begins which I also respected but wasn't blown away by and then he does The Prestige you know like he does a handful of movies that sort of temper my excitement about the guy and it's really sure. not in until the Dark Knight, but mostly Inception, where I, I completely come back around. I'm just like, ah, this is the here's the guy. Here's what I was promised after Memento. Like this is the guy sure. that I, I was hopeful he would become. So that that means this part of his career, this post Memento part of his career, is where he kind of lost me for a little bit. I mean, I certainly saw all the movies. I wasn't obsessed the way that I became post-Inception. Real quick before we get on to uh, Insomnia, I want to read you a quote from uh, the great Chuck Klosterman, who's a favorite of both of ours. Yeah. Uh, this is him talk. He wrote a lot about Memento after it came out. I believe this is from uh, Cocoa Puffs and uh, Sex, Drugs, Sex, Drugs, Cocoa and Cocoa Puffs. Puffs, referencing Memento. The most interesting part for me is that audiences seem very unwilling to believe the stuff that Teddy, played by Joe Pantaleonto, says at the end and yet why. I think it's because people have spent the entire film looking at Leonard's photographs of Teddy with the caption, don't believe his lies. That image really stays in people's heads and they still prefer to trust that image even after we make it very clear that Leonard's visual recollection is completely questionable. It was quite surprising and it wasn't planned. What was always planned was that we don't ever step completely outside of Leonard's head and that we keep the audience in that interpretive mode of trying to analyze what they want to believe or not. For me, the crux of the movie is that the one guy who might actually be authority on the truth of what happened is played by Joe Pantaleano, who is so untrustworthy, especially given the baggage he carries in from other movies, he's already seen by audiences as the character who's always unreliable. I find it very frightening, really, the level of uncertainty and malevolence Joe Pantaleano brings to the film. So I think this is significant <laughs> because you were mentioning how this is a movie that's kind of just defined by unreliable narrators, right? Like, yeah. I'll quote for myself here in my article or my essay about Memento. Leonard is the platonic ideal of the film noir antihero and the quintessential known protagonist because he doesn't need the satisfaction of an answer. He's much more interested in ongoing search, a protracted quest, another question. It's no coincidence that the last line of the film ends with a question mark. You got your protagonist who is the quintessential unreliable narrator, and then you have the nominal antagonist who is feeding our, our, our guy all these <laughs> things which are completely unreliable but we have no recourse to be able to confirm that he's lying you know yeah. and he's filling Leonard's head with all these things and the, the climax of the movie is this big old exposition dump that neither us nor Leonard can possibly confirm and I know that's really really frustrating for a lot of people and I found the ending of this movie so exhilarating but I think a lot of people feel very removed from it and find it to be too cute and too gimmicky by nature of not giving you easy answers a lot of people find it frustrating that's really become a, a running theme you know like that's why a lot of people can't get on board with Inception because they can't they just can't reconcile that last shot of the spinning top you know they just can't reconcile <laughs> yeah. it um, and that's fine I don't I don't begrudge anybody uh, if they're not into it if they don't like it I really feel like he's he's kind of establishing something here in terms of the fact that he's just not really very interested in giving you easy answers he's much more interested in asking difficult questions if you 
you think about crime movies or action movies or whatever, the sort of twists and turns and the and the audience being left in the dark is reliant upon the writer director withholding information from you that you otherwise should have in a linear structure. Okay. Right. That happens a lot. Like that's that, a common complaint. It's like, why didn't this person just tell this person something and everything would have been resolved, right? Mm-hmm. But Nolan consistently gets around that stuff by playing with time and playing with these unreliable narrators. That makes the uneasy answers come naturally. It all feels organic, despite how how much gimmickry is involved. He's created a structure in which the gimmickry feels organic is what we're saying. Yes. Is that he's yeah. he's yeah, cuz he's built it from the ground up to fulfill the promise of its own contextual construction, you know, which is a, a very hard thing to do. When you break the rules of time, you can give the answers whenever you want in a movie. It's a hard trick to pull when, to, to have something that is not shown linear, linearly. But if you can pull that off, then you're given a lot of plot leeway in terms of how you dole out information. And he takes advantage of that. I'm glad you brought up the T word because that's um, obviously going to be extremely important, uh, particularly as we get into the next episode of this series, I'm assuming up through Tenet. And there's a wonderful, it's probably my favorite scene in the movie where he's laying, Guy Pierce is laying in Carrie Ann Moss's bed and he's giving this monologue about the fact that he can't remember to forget his wife. He, he just delivers this beautiful monologue. I lie here not knowing how long I've been alone. So how, how can I heal? How am I supposed to heal if I can't feel time? And this is sort of like planting those seeds of this obsession with time and temporality that will become, I think, foregrounded as we get further and further yeah. into his filmography. And and really, this feels like the first instance in, in Nolan's oeuvre of him sort of suggesting that that time can be uh, an, an antagonist, that time can be scary because we can't yeah. control it. And I think so much of what he's interested in doing in terms of his structure, in terms of his unconventional storytelling style, is sort of like taking control of time through cinema in a way that we, we haven't figured out a way to do in real life, right? Yes. And, yeah. and how scary it is for this guy to go through life and have no concept of it anymore because he can't feel it anymore because he's going to reset every 15 minutes so he doesn't know how long it's been since his wife was killed and and that's a that's a terrifying notion and i believe that nolan is fundamentally scared of time i don't know if it's because he's scared of dying or whatever but i see the through line in in his films of him of him continuing to use time as something to fear like time as a nominal antagonist in a lot of his movies yeah i mean it's interesting i've been i've been reading a lot of books during quarantine and I've had a few recently that uh, I read a Vonnegut one, read another one, playing with the sort of unstuck in time idea, right? Sort of time is a flat circle, the fourth dimension, everything's happening at once. And Christopher Nolan really is the sort of only big filmmaker that consistently plays with that. And we'll get into this more with, with Inception and Interstellar, which is you know what those movies are about. But it really opens up so much more in terms of drama and character and narrative that it's it's almost surprising to me that we haven't seen more of it. Maybe it's just that he's way better and more disciplined and more mathematical, like you've said, about executing this kind of stuff. I think discipline is, is a good word. Um, you know, he famously claims to not have a cell phone, claims to not have an email address. When he's not making movies, apparently it's just 
it's all about his family. There's no distractions. Like he's a very mm-hmm. kind of regimented guy in that in that regard, which is part of the part of the reason a lot of people feel sort of alienated from him as a personality and and his films by extension. But it's something yeah. that I have a lot of respect for. All right, so just a couple of notes before we move on. Memento added to the National Film Registry in 2017. The Writers Guild of America ranked the screenplay for Memento number 100 on its list of 101 greatest screenplays ever written. Wow. Initially, Nolan wanted to use Radiohead's Paranoid Android during the end credits, but he was unable to secure the rights. Instead, David Bowie's Something in the Air is used, although another one of Radiohead's songs, an extended version of Tree Fingers from Kid A, uh, is included on the film's soundtrack. So it's kind of interesting that the movie ends with a Bowie song two movies before The Prestige, right? Brad Pitt was supposed to play the lead character, or they wanted him. Yeah, apparently he was circling the project. I, I love the fact that Guy Pierce is in this movie. I've always been a big Guy Pierce fan. I've always been kind of surprised he didn't end up becoming a bigger movie star. But this catches Guy Pierce at a really great, right after LA Confidential. And I think he's just perfect. I can't imagine, I couldn't imagine Brad Pitt in this role. Like, I find Guy Pierce to be so iconic in this role. I, I really, I think it's an incredible performance. Brad Pitt would have been great. I'm sure he would have been totally fine. As he always is. Carrie Ann Moss, of course, coming right off of The Matrix. And then she's the one who suggests Joe Pantel. Watching this again this week, I just kept thinking to myself, God damn, why has Nolan not worked with Joe Pantaleano again? He is <laughs> yeah, so good in this movie. They, I mean, they clearly, the, the two of them, something is really clicking there. I was so elated to see Martin Donovan pop up in the Tenet trailers because he hasn't worked with Nolan since Insomnia. I really would love it if Joe Pantaleano would come back into the Nolan fold one of these days. Well, maybe it is that that Klosterman thing. He he just, he thinks audiences are going to come in with just a, automatically a, a not negative trusting view. Him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Guido the killer pimp. All right, mm-hmm. so uh, Memento comes out at the Sundance Film Festival. It's a big sensation, and uh, Steven Soderbergh is there, and he sees it, and he's impressed. And he takes a meeting with Nolan, and he's like, why don't you come over to Warner Brothers and take a couple meetings? My, my shingle, my production company, Section 8, which I started with George Clooney, uh, we have a bungalow on the Warner Brothers lot. Why don't you come uh, talk to the Warner Bros? He comes out and he takes a bunch of meetings and Soderbergh basically champions this guy and he says I want to produce his next film I've got an idea you know we own the rights to uh, this uh, relatively obscure Swedish Norwegian film called Insomnia Mm -hmm. Starred Stellan Skarsgård in 97, uh, came out in 1997. And he's like, what do you think about this? We're going to remake this movie anyway. I think this would be a good transitional film for you. You can learn to work with a studio. You can learn to work with a bigger budget. You can work with big movie stars. Warner Brothers is is a little bit squeamish, uh, even even based on the strength of Memento. They're not quite ready to give him choice of his, of his own cinematographer. Basically, Soderbergh puts his arm around Nolan and says, Warner Brothers, this guy gets final cut. He gets to choose his DP. He gets to choose his costume designer. He's a real big kid filmmaker. And I'm insisting that we we take a chance on this guy. So it's really Steven Soderbergh who helps Nolan to become a mainstream studio filmmaker. He, he championed him from the very beginning. He and uh, Clooney produced this movie. And then they never really worked together again. I don't, I don't think they had a falling out. I think part of it's that Section 8 ended up falling apart. Section 8 doesn't exist anymore. And then Nolan gets so much juice that he and Emma Thomas just basically start their own thing, which is syncope. So they don't, he doesn't need him anymore. But, but he, we really need to thank Soderbergh for helping Nolan to come into the Warner Brothers fold, which is where he's worked ever since. So they give him $46 million to make this uh, remake of a Norwegian thriller. I'm sorry, this is a cliche we use too much, but this is really the kind of movie that doesn't get made anymore, you know? The adult R-rated. Middle budget. Mid-budget. Nothing but Oscar winners above the title. And this movie just works. 
this movie just cooks. Like, I, I just think it's such a successful movie. It's not, I don't think it's an important movie in the grand scheme of his oeuvre. I don't know if it's a groundbreaking movie, but it's just good. It just works. I hadn't seen this movie in many years. I mean, I saw it in the theater, saw it afterwards, and I was surprised at how fucking entertaining it was and how, how yeah, like you said, it, it just moves and it's interesting. And despite all that, it is, I feel, the biggest outlier in his filmography. But as you set up, a very necessary one. He needed to prove that he could be a studio guy, that he could, you know, work with a pretty big budget, that he could work with some big name actors and prove that in doing so he could make a studio some money. They don't make these kind of movies because these kind of movies haven't been all that profitable. And this movie, what, grossed 110 million or something like that? Yeah, it was a pretty decent sized hit. It came out in May of, uh, came out on May 24th, 2002. Rotten Tomatoes score of 92%. Yeah. Did 114 million worldwide. As I referenced, Al Pacino, Robin Williams, Hillary Swank, Oscar winners all. Nikki Cat, more tyranny. Yes, Nikki Cat. I think it's just this in The Dark Knight, right? I was about to say Nikki Cat is sort of like a secret member of the Nolan repertory group, <laughs> but I think it might just be his little cameo in The Dark Knight. Let's get more Pacino Nolan team-ups, huh? Yeah, so this is an important Pacino for me because I feel like this was the last great Pacino performance up until last year. And I, I think that The Irishman is significant in terms of bringing him back. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, obviously a much smaller role, but he had a good year last year. But between 2002 and 2019, he's pretty lost like I'm not very familiar with some of the HBO stuff you know Angels yeah, yeah. Angels in America like some of the HBO stuff he's done I haven't I haven't been I haven't seen I'm, I think he's winning Emmys for them and stuff but if you want to just talk about theatrical features after this he's done I mean he's basically lost in the woods for, for many many years but he's so dialed in in this movie he's so fucking good in this and he, he does like he does go sort of Pacino over the top at points near the end especially a couple times but it's it's freaking delightful when he does hey look around yeah. I want to show you something, see? Now you'll understand why I brought you. This is the spot where your best friend's naked body was dumped. Racked up in garbage bags! This is also a cliche, but I really can't imagine anyone else doing this role and, and playing him this way. I mean, just the, the way he, he settles into his titular insomnia throughout the movie and just gets more and more detached is pretty awesome. And like he keeps the humanity that, that this character needs. That said, this is a pretty straightforward plot. There's no sort of delinear gimmicks going on here. Uh, there's not a lot of the sort of Nolan touchstones that we've come to know. Uh, that said, it's beautifully shot in British Columbia, well acted, very tight, interesting take on a, a crime murder, you know, investigation movie. It's got a lot of pathos and yeah, it's just really straightforward and good and the type of studio movie we're fucking hankering for these days. Have you seen the original? I've not seen the original. I just watched it recently. It's on the Criterion channel. It stars Stellan Skarsgård in the Pacino role. It's a much kind of grimier, dirtier movie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a little more psychosexual in its own like Ooh. you know Stellan Skarsgård never shies away from from going down that particularly in in the 90s he was never afraid of going down that this the psychosexual alley um but it's pretty it's pretty similar it follows the same basic structure this is a significant one because this is the only film in Nolan's filmography that he does not have a writing credit on mm -hmm. um it could have been a WGA thing I don't know he could have done a polish uh, I couldn't really find any information about it but it's written by a woman named Hillary Seitz whose only other real credit is the Eagle Eye with Shia LaBeouf and uh, Michelle Monaghan uh, but that's pretty much it. She was just a gun for hire, just adapting this this Norwegian film. You know, moving this to North America is probably the 
the the original takes place in Norway up by the Arctic Circle. And he's just a Swedish cop who would have gotten called out for something like this because he works for like basically the Swedish version of the FBI or whatever. And so he gets called yeah. to Norway. It, it's much more organic. In this one, it's a, it's a long walk. It's a long to walk get to, to get him there literally and figuratively like, I, I buy it. I'm okay with it. But it's far and away the weakest part of the movie is like, wait, why are we bringing LA cops all the way up to fucking Alaska? I don't, I don't think that's legal. It doesn't. I mean, they bend over backwards to try to make it work, but it's far and away the weakest part. Luckily, we kind of we get past it pretty quick and then we get onto the juicier stuff, but it's a little harder to buy in this one than it is in, in the original. My, I think the, the the weakest part of this movie is the fact that they named the town Night Mute. A little on the nose. And Dormer, he's Detective Dormer. Dormer is French for sleep. But for the most part, it all works pretty darn well. Like, it's just, it's just a clean and effective and exciting movie with a bunch of great performances and just a very evocative setting. This is, again, this is the third film in what I consider to be his, like, Daylight Noir trilogy. And it's yeah. so fun to be in this environment with a son literally never goes down it and there's just scenes where he's just walking through night mute and the streets are just completely empty and you're like oh yeah of course it's it's like supposed to be like one o'clock in the morning or something of course there's nobody on yeah. the streets but it's just this very it's just this it's sort of like odd weird. and alienating yeah it's, it's just great and for a guy like Pacino who was accused of kind of sleepwalking through a lot of his a lot of the performances in his later years it's so nice to be able to just sort of like use that as a device as a character building device and as somebody who has spent a lot of my life very sleep deprived particularly in my teens and 20s when I was pulling lots of all-nighters and stuff. This is the best movie I've ever seen in terms of representing the subjective experience of being sleep-deprived. I know exactly how that feels when you're like right there on the verge of sort of falling asleep and you start hallucinating, you start hearing things and things start falling out of focus, lights start blooming. It's all great stuff. I don't know how, how much experience Nolan has with that personally. But he certainly does an incredible job of, of putting putting us there. Nolan seems to be extremely meticulous about getting these things right. I mean, maybe he stayed it, up for three days just to figure out how to portray it. Uh, reading Memento, like they're they're a bunch of psychiatrists, right? Applauding his uh, portrayal of of that was it retrograde amnesia or whatever you call Antero- it. Yeah, anterograde amnesia. Anterograde amnesia. So yeah, he definitely pays attention to that stuff. But I, I do want to give a shout out to both Robin Williams and the characterization of that role because that could have seemed really silly if portrayed a little differently because it is sort of a another it's like a it's like a pulpy gimmick that the killer is you know a mystery writer and is obsessed with how to get away with murder and like writes notes while he's talking to Pacino and all that shit and thinks he's he thinks he's way smarter and way yes. like he, he clearly has way too um, large of an opinion of himself and Pacino cuts him down almost immediately <laughs> which I appreciate which is, which is delightful too yeah. and Robin Williams this is this is in the midst of his sort of dark period yep. brief as it was but he's fantastic those two playing off each other those are some really 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 good scenes yeah. and Hilary Swank uh, does a really good job job as the as the wide-eyed and principled uh, up-and-coming investigator she's, do, so. she's doing her best with a very kind of a one it's a one note part yeah it's even smaller in the original as well so at least they've made a little more of an effort here to give her more to work with first time you hear robin williams voice is at the 49 minute mark this movie's only an, uh, 118 minutes long the first time you see robin williams face is at the one hour one minute mark so it doesn't even show up until yeah. past the halfway point of the movie which i think is pretty bold and yeah when when he and pacino are on screen together the movie just rocks like it's just incredible mm-hmm. to see these two titans working together and so it's an important level up for Nolan because he's working with these incredible actors and pretty much from here on out, his casts are, are just insane. You know, like he he really can't attract. He's getting whoever he wants from here on out. 
and always, you know, always lots of Oscar winners or at least Oscar nominees, even in some of the smaller roles. There's something very workmanlike about this movie. It's just a guy in his early 30s learning to play with bigger toys, learning to work with bigger actors, forging an incredible collaborative relationship with Wally Pfister, who he met on uh, when he hired him for Memento. Wally Pfister came out of uh, documentaries but he also came out of uh, softcore porn. Like, if you look at Wally Pfister's filmography, he's Ooh. a lot of, like, Playboys, uh, <laughs> Dancing After Dark, you yeah. know, stuff like that. So he comes... I imagine Christopher Nolan just watching some Cinemax, like, this Shannon Tweed movie is incredibly <laughs> well shot. He apparently met him at... Sundance before they shot Memento. I'm not sure. I'm not sure exactly what the what the circumstances were, but he met him at Sundance. Uh, they hit it off. I mean, he hired him for Memento. It's a great looking movie. But Warner Brothers pushed back because Wally Pfister was not a guy at this point. He was not. He was not known. He was not a name. He was not a mainstream studio cinematographer. And so they fought him on it. And then it was Soderbergh who finally got. Fister approved. Then he gets he gets Oscar nominated for Batman Begins. He gets Oscar nominated for The Dark Knight. He wins for Inception. You know, from here on out, he's on the rocket sled to the moon. I think this is a really important movie for Fister as well, being able to like play with bigger toys, sweeping yep. helicopter shots that are very reminiscent of Batman Begins. The the fulcrum of the movie, the the misty shootout, the end of the first act sure. is in- incredibly well done and very important to sort of have it be have it be vague and be able to believe or not believe Al Pacino from there on out. That and the the law rolling scene yeah. are probably the yes. two real uh, most impressive the fog scene it's it's identical to the sequence in the original the the log rolling scene is not in the original so that's either a Hillary okay. Sites or a Nolan invention but it's a it's a harrowing I, I can't think of oh, anything scarier than having the choice between I can either drown under these logs or I can have my head crushed like a grape by when these <laughs> It's logs banging together. Nolan is very interested in drowning. Yeah, we're, we're actually going to get into that in a second. We talk about the prestige. A couple little notes. Uh, Eric Schjoldberg, who's the director of the original, uh, has nothing but nice things to say about the remake. Apparently, he really, really liked it, and he was very impressed with it. Thought Nolan showed a lot of promise. Significantly, the main character, the Pacino character, dies in this at the end of this film. He lives in the original. So okay. he basically, the last scene of the movie is is um, the Hilary Swank character telling him that she's figured out what he did. I figured this out. I know that you killed your partner. I, I believe it was an accident, but I know that you lied. But she basically lets him go. And he gets he gets in a car yeah. and, he's, and he drives back to Sweden or wherever. And at the end of this one, um, he is punished. He is killed. There's more of a bit of a moral high ground, I guess, that the movie takes and says, like, sure. this guy's been in purgatory. He needs to now be, be released into the afterlife or whatever because he's passed on something to the next generation. And when she's about ready to throw away the bullet, he says, nope, don't lose your way. Tell them what happened. Tell them the truth. Don't lose your way the way that I did. Mm-hmm. The, the, the original is much more morally ambiguous. This one is clearly interested in, in being a little more Hollywood. Exactly, a little more black and white. Two of my favorite scenes of the movie are the interrogation scenes between Pacino and the teenagers. I like the teenage characters in this movie. There's just a bunch of little assholes. They're great. When he goes, is it Joshua Jackson? Jonathan Jackson? I think it's, it's not Joshua. It's not. It Joshua must be Jonathan Jackson. Jackson. He's a he's a, a soap opera kid. Okay. He's he's the boyfriend. He's like the the shithead boyfriend who lights up a cigarette in the middle of the interrogation. And I love when Pacino just grabs his. He, he throws the cigarette away just grabs his desks and pulls him over uh, that's a really fun scene and then when he takes the the um the best friend to the garbage dump later that's a really fun scene too it's like you said it's kind of the outlier i was very happy with how well this held up i was not expecting to enjoy it nearly as much as i did and i i was very excited about that it's good to see rob williams again yes good to see pacino just uh, put on a master class significantly this is the only christopher nolan film that ends with a fade to black if you look through okay. his 10 films they always have a hard cut to black 
before the credits. The one exception being uh, The Dark Knight Rises, the platform JGL is standing on rises up and overtakes the frame. But other than that, his movie's always hard cut to black. This one has um, has just a very soft, casual fade to black before the credits. From here, obviously, he gets the Batman gig we talked about on the last episode. He's got a take on it. They buy it, and he goes off and makes a Batman movie. And then as soon as he wraps the Batman movie, he immediately jumps into his next film. I think that's the shortest amount of time between films, right? Batman Begins 2005, The Prestige in 2006. It's the fastest he's ever turned around a movie. So as early as 2001, he and his little brother Jonah trying to figure out how to adapt this book by Christopher Priest called The Prestige. And it's a very twisty, very complicated, very involved book. Very epistolary, I think. You know, lots of letters, lots of diaries. Like, not necessarily lending itself to a direct adaptation. That's probably why it took them so long to finally get it adapted. Rights of the book were owned by Disney. To get this film made, Disney and Nolan's home Warner Brothers had to co-distribute. Disney gets international, Warner Brothers gets domestic. Coming off of Batman Begins, he's got a lot of juice. And he's like, all right, now's the time to do this. Let's keep this momentum going. Let's make this thing as quickly as possible. And they're off to the races. Both Jackman and Christian Bale apparently lobbied for these parts. They came to him. He didn't go to them. They were both obviously superheroes by this point. So I'm sure yeah. it probably wasn't very <laughs> difficult to convince Warner Brothers to uh, sign these guys up. Yeah. But they had gotten hold of the script somehow. And they like went to Nolan and said, I want to be involved in this. I think you would call this the hipster answer for what's Nolan's best movie. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's very easy to be like Inception, Memento, maybe in The Dark Knight. Those are the sort of obvious answers. Mm-hmm. But I think hipsters and critics like to point to this one as being, no, Se- Prestige is secretly Nolan's masterpiece. Call me a hipster, man. I might be in this that. This is your mode. favorite? We'll, okay. We'll see how I feel once I rewatch these later movies. Watching this again, and I've seen this a, a million times, despite how sort of dark and, and can get a little grimy, and it feels like he's having the most fun he's ever had during this movie almost. Okay. Right? I'll buy that. Like he's using all of his tricks. It's a movie about magic tricks that is a magic trick in and of itself. You know, there's a lot of true and he gives away the fucking plot in the very first shot of the movie, yep. right? Like I mean that's the ultimate version of misdirection, right? Yes. Like lying to the audience by distracting them with the truth. When you sit back and really think about what just happened in this movie, like it is very silly. Sure. And again, that's that's part of his uh his his mastery is the form of it. It's the way it's told that makes it so satisfying the twists never feel like dun 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 twists you know they're always happening and it takes a moment to sort of ingest and understand holy shit so that's that's the implication here even though i know what's going on in these in, in this movie i still love re-watching it i still pick up on different little things i think part of that's because it's jumping all over the place it's a little more complicated than memento just just narratively and that multiple timelines they don't adhere to a strict structure to top it all off just having Jackman and Bale go after each other for two and a half hours is... I mean, is this the only... No, I guess that, I guess that's sort of a redundant question. I was going to say, is this the only time when he's truly had like a two hand, you know, like dual protagonist? But I guess you could look at Dunkirk as sort of being Rylance, Tom Hardy, well, and and I think it's the only one where it's a it's it's just a it's a one v one. Probably have exactly the same screen time, give or take. Yeah, I'm I'm a Bale guy personally. I think they're both fantastic in this. I think they're both perfectly cast. But I think I do end up kind of siding with Bale. I mean, they're both bad guys. They're both very flawed guys. They're both damaged yes. dudes for a number of reasons. I love the duality of the um, technician versus the showman, right? Yeah. So you've got Bale, who's the technician, but who is not great at selling it. And then you've got Jackman, who is all showmanship, but none of the true inspiration. You know, he's not the... No, he's kind of not yeah. the technical. Less talented. Ju- yeah. This is Nolan's first, I think, real foray into that sort of postmodern reading of films about filmmaking, or at least films about 
artist and the artistic impulse, right? And I think what I presume he's fi- he found so fascinating about the story was that sort of push and pull between those two impulses that probably live inside him as well. And I think mm-hmm. part of the reason that I, I, I personally side with Bale, and I think the movie is a little more interested in Bale, is because I think that's probably a little more Nolan. He has to be a little bit of Jackman. He has to be a little bit of a showman because he works in enter- the entertainment industry. But I think his personality is much more like technician, don't like to do interviews, don't want to talk about my personal life. I, I think that that's probably a little more him. This movie is actually about Nolan and Michael Bay's ongoing <laughs> feud in the industry. There's also the Tesla and Edison parallel, right? History would have us believe that Tesla was actually the true genius, but Edison was a much better salesman. And that's that's kind of what we go. I've also heard people talk about the Salieri, the Mozart kind of Salieri thing. Mm-hmm. Salieri is not the musical genius touched by God. And so he's constantly like infected by the idea of this guy that he just can't reconcile. Also a very, I'd say a very homoerotic movie. There's a great comedian named Jamie Loftus. And I was listening to a podcast that she recorded about this movie a number of years ago. And she talked about it being about just like moody boys who just want each other's approval. And they just like want each other to read the other one's diary. Yeah. Read my diary. (laughs) Because so much of the movie is them reading each other's diaries. Also sort of delves into the whole unreliable narrator situation, right? Because at one point you realize that these diaries were specifically written and then planted. They're written as misdirection for each other, which Mm -hmm. is a really complex screenwriting gambit. Just the implications of writing that and portraying that and keeping it from being too confusing, it just makes my brain hurt to think about. There's a lot of uh, risky screenwriting gambits (laughs) in this movie. Crazy how they tie it all in together in what ends up being, I think, as insane as uh, it all ends up being, fairly straightforward at the end. Like I, I went down a crazy rabbit hole about people theorizing on what actually happened at the end of this movie. And to me, it seems pretty straightforward. Do you, do you buy into any of these theories? I haven't done a lot of research into them. No, I, I don't think the movie's trying to be confusing at the end. The <laughs> idea that Nikola Tesla was able to create a cloning machine is pretty big leap to take. Not only a cloning machine, a, a machine that clones the consciousness of the person as well. At, at the risk of going down this rabbit hole immediately, are you familiar with the whole like ship of Theseus thought experiment? Uh, no. Well, maybe. Basically, the idea is if you if you have a ship and you start replacing one piece of the ship one piece at a time, like you start replacing every board, every sail, you know, you never actually like take the entire boat apart. You're just replacing one piece at a time until you literally have replaced every piece of the boat. Is it the, still the same boat? Is it still the Theseus? It, everything yeah. is new, even though you've just been incrementally replacing things. And so the, the way it's applied to this movie is because his consciousness has been cloned, does that mean they're all Jack men's? And is he existing? <laughs> is his consciousness existing in all of them simultaneously? At one point, he says um, he never knew if he was going to be the man in the box or the man in the prestige which is an incredibly confusing concept for me. I mean, they don't explain a couple of the things that happen in this movie, especially the the Jackman on Jackman murders. If that is truly the case, it's really sort of a race to see who murders who first of the Jackmans, right? Presumably the other Jackman would know that they're they're trying to stay alive as well. Well, the one time you see him actually murder a Jackman clone in cold blood, he puts the gun down, he, he goes to the machine, and the clone sees him, sees the gun, begs for his life, and then immediately gets shot. So that yeah. clone knows 
what the original Jackman's intentions are. He realizes it half a second too late. Well, every time Jackman does the trick, he's got a 50-50 chance of being killed, right? That's the part I can't wrap my brain around. The original Jackman did not make it all the way to the end. That'd be crazy. That's the ship of Theseus thing, right? Yeah. The original Jackman died early in the process, so is this clone Jackman still Jackman? <laughs> you know, like, it again, it'll, it'll turn your brain into knots. My, my question is, why does he keep the corpses? Why is it important that he keep all the corpses? Why does he have all these tanks with dead jack, man, jack men? Why not just burn the bodies or whatever? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't I mean, know. it's a it's cool visual. It's, with... a, it's an incredible final shot. But what what is what's in it for him to keep to keep the evidence? Uh, I don't know. He's worried about the evidence getting out. What's the significance of doing a hundred shows only? He only wants to kill a hundred times. That seems like a weird just a nice round number, number to choose. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Christopher Priest, who wrote the novel that the film was based on, saw it three times in theaters, and his reaction was, "Well, holy shit, I like that. I wish I'd thought of that." <laughs> you can go down a rabbit hole of reading Christopher Priest's thoughts about this movie. He loves the movie. He loves Nolan. He's just enamored with everything about this adaptation. He's so proud to have his name on it. And he just thinks yeah. Nolan is the coolest. This definitely has risen in esteem, uh, like you mentioned, sort of the hipster choice over the years. It's a more modest Nolan movie compared to the bigger... I mean, this is the last movie he makes that's under a $100 million budget, basically, right? That's exactly right. $40 million budget, $110 million uh, worldwide box office. So yeah, he makes a huge leap after this one to The Dark Knight. Yeah, this is the last quote-unquote modest film he ever makes, I guess. Was not a huge critical. It's only 75% on Rotten Tomatoes, which seems kind of low to me, considering that it, I feel like this is a beloved movie now. Yeah. Didn't really make much of an impression when it first came out. Everybody was still so high on the Batman thing, and everybody was still so kind of excited about The Dark Knight. They kind of just wanted to move on to that. Also, famously, this was the year of the Magician movies. The Illusionist comes out first. Uh, Scoop also comes out this year, which is a kind of a magician movie also has Jackman in it. But yeah, it seems to me there was just kind of like a shrug, despite the fact that it had two very big movie stars at the center of it, three very, very big movie stars if you count Scarlet. I saw in the theater and again, I was just, I was in a place at this point in Nolan's career where I was just like, yeah, this guy's really competent, clearly knows what he's doing, but I wasn't inspired by anything at this point yet. I've since come to love this movie and I do think it's one of his most entertaining films for sure. And probably one of his best films, honestly. At the time, I just was like, yeah, what else you got? And I've, I've since come to respect this as certainly one of his best looking films is Wally Fister really hit this one out of the park. It, it's really hard to understate how fucking good Bale and Jackman are together in this movie. They really bring it. I think the one-two punch of this and Dark Knight back to back really got me on the Nolan train, I guess, somewhat early. So I was I was super stoked on this guy. I was I, I was just incredibly impressed with the audacity of this movie because it is so insane. And I, I wonder if the shrug was just like, you know, kind of what we talked about. People don't want to think about the the ramifications of what actually happened at the end of this film. It's definitely one of his darker endings for sure. Maybe his darkest ending. Even though uh, Insomnia is the last time he made a rated R film. He's he's Everything has been PG-13 since Insomnia. This first half of his career, his endings are, are quite dark and quite cynical. Yeah. Following Memento. Insomnia, the prestige, you know, obviously Batman Begins has a happy ending. It's a comic book movie and mm -hmm. um, it ends with something triumphant. Mm -hmm. But 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 if you take that one out of it, these films that are, you know, defined by noir elements, complex moral conundrums and very, very flawed characters, they all end in pretty dark, cynical, devastating ways. And it's yes. only once. And honestly, The Dark Knight has a pretty cynical ending, certainly compared to the other two Batman movies. Oh, for sure. But then once you get to Inception, he starts to kind of mellow out. And, you know, we don't need to go too far down this road, but his movies start to become more hopeful. 
and the endings start to become quote unquote happier, you know? Yeah. Like if you look at everything he's made since post inception, when I say mellow, I don't I don't mean that as an insult. Certainly I I think his later films have been amongst my favorites of and most successful of his films. But he was really kind of dark and brooding and cynical about the world when he was in the first half of his career. He, he does get a lot more, you know, lovey dovey. He turns to love and I mean what when did he have his first child? Was it right around Dark Knight? It's gotta be right around this time. It's it's gotta be pretty soon. Inception is obviously obsessed with the idea of fatherhood and a father who whose number one priority is getting back to his children. Interstellar, Jesus. Yeah, and then he really doubles down in Interstellar. <laughs> Speaking of doubling down, this is the movie that really establishes, well, I mean, Memento, of course, has a dead wife as well. But in this one, you get two dead wives, right? Both protagonists of this movie, each one of their wives dies. And this is obviously become sort of a controversial recurring thing, the fridging scenario, if you will, constantly using dead wives as inciting incidents or his plot devices. And and he's gotten a lot of shit about that over the years. I think it's justified to a certain extent, but in this one, it really feels apparent. When you're writing your own movies and your life is fucking happy as shit and you have to think about, okay, what, what would be an inciting incident in my life to make me do something? Dead wife. And he's been with Emma Thomas since he was 19 years old. Sounds like they've got a wonderful relationship. You know, they're college sweethearts. So sounds like he's got a great marriage and a great family. Yeah, I think this is obviously very far from his experience. Experience, but maybe that's how he was kind of wanting to tell stories at this point in his career by really reaching. And yeah. um, this movie is so beautifully sort of composed. And if you look at the production history of this, it was not a huge budget. And most of it was shot on the back lot at Universal. You know, like it looks oh, really? like it looks like they're in London in the 1890s. But most of that was just them dressing the back lots at Universal and Warner Brothers. Hell of a job. Yeah, most of it's shot in L.A. This might be my favorite Michael Caine performance in a Nolan movie. He obviously is very important to the Nolan repertoire group he's been in every mo- every Nolan movie since Batman Begins I think this is my favorite Kane yeah those three-dimensional character he's played it's probably the most he's had to work with For but sure. yeah he is sort of a very tragic father figure here I love this movie I think it's a, it's a delightful watch every time you know we'll get into this with his his last uh, three slash four films but I kind of want him to have a little more dark dirty fun in his movies most of this movie is shot handheld like there's just an energy yeah. to it it definitely feels like a little more of a run-and-gun kind of thing Roger Ebert wrote about this movie, quote, quite a movie, atmospheric, obsessive, almost satanic. (laughs) Yeah. David Julian, who was with Nolan from the very beginning, composed the score, but Hans Zimmer produced the soundtrack. And so this is the last time he worked with David Julian. I don't think they had a falling out or anything like that. I think he just kind of leveled up when he started working with Nolan, with Zimmer, rather. Ends with a Tom York song from uh, from The Eraser, which is a great album. Ends ends with a Tom York song called Analyze, which I think is, is quite delightful. Apparently, the only person considered for the Tesla role was David Bowie. Turned it down. Nolan had to, like, fly to New York, sit with him, and, like, basically convince him that this is he's the only guy for this job. And he is. I mean, it, that that is the silliest part of the movie, the whole cloning situation. But I think the reason that it works is because you have Ziggy Stardust. You, you kind of believe that if there is anybody who might be able to create a cloning machine, it might be David Bowie as Nikola Tesla. It's just a coup of a casting decision. Nothing is impossible, Mr. Angio. What you want is simply expensive. If I were to build for you this machine, you would be presenting it merely as illusion. Well, if people actually believe the things I did on stage, they wouldn't clap that scream. I mean, think of sawing a woman in half. Mr. Angier, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? 
wouldn't you watch like a, uh, I mean, obviously we can't because David Bowie's dead, but like a HBO limited series of David Bowie and Andy Serkis in Colorado Springs? <laughs> yes, please. Yes. Give me all of that. And then we can find, we can cast Mick Jagger as, as Thomas Edison or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> that works for me. Do you want to wrap this uh, fucker up? Maybe get a little call to action to our to our people out there? Well, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, we like movies, but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing it. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. Follow us on the socials at WLM Podcast. Drop us a line the old-fashioned way, WLMPodcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in helping us keep the lights on at WLMHQ, visit WeLikeMovies.com and click on the donation link at the top. You can also find archives, listicles, rankings, video essays, and assorted ephemera. Spread the word, tell your friends, and help us keep the conversation going for Oscar Dahl. I'm Matt Knutson, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... I'm going to give this one 99 out of 100 Jack Men. 